0: Anger Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World
1: Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org.
0: We hope you enjoy this talk.
1: It's a privilege for me to introduce now our keynote speaker for this evening. Dr Chris Wright has been serving God in India. He has been the principal of All Nations Christian College in the south of England. He's currently uh, leading the work of the Langham Partnership. And uh, he's written, I think, about a dozen books. About a dozen books. Getting on for 20. I can't keep up. In fact, it was only when I um, realized that I was going to have to introduce Chris that I thought I'd better read one of these books. So uh, I had to read one that was called The God I Don't Understand, and I thought that was a really good title for a um, a famous Bible teacher. Anyway, uh, it's great to have Chris with us tonight. I wonder if any of you have heard of the story of the Three Freds. Does it ring any bells? Oh, there you go. Well, one of those Freds, Fred Wright, was Chris's uncle. And uh, I heard about this when I met the young lady who is my wife many years ago, 40 years ago, actually. And uh, her family introduced me to the story of the three Freds, and uh, that was my second introduction to Chris Wright, because Chris and I were in the same class in school, and we haven't seen each other, apart from once, in 40-something. A lot of years, more than we can remember anyway. But anyway, uh, I was going to tell you tonight something about um, what Chris was like in school and uh, all that sort of thing, but then I thought, actually, he's coming to preach for me tomorrow morning, so I better not say anything too derogatory at this point. Anyway, it's great to have Chris, and I don't want to take up his time. I'm just asking you to welcome him tonight as God's messenger to us. He's going to bring God's word And I believe God will speak to us deeply as we open our hearts to him tonight. Let me pray for Chris before he speaks. Father, thank you for bringing Chris among us tonight. Thank you for all that you've put into this man. Thank you for the way you have worked in his life and given him so much experience of you, so much joy in working for you, so much much of God in him. And Lord, I want to pray tonight that he would... Uh, find complete liberty to release something of what you have put into him so that we can all receive from you tonight in jesus name amen amen Amen. Amen. thank you well thank you so much jeff
0: for that wonderful welcome and uh, it's lovely always lovely to be back in uh, northern ireland our home Uh, and particularly to be here in bangor which has always been uh, a favorite town for liz and myself Uh, and it's lovely to be back. I was in um, uh, New Horizon earlier in the summer, and uh, one person has already said that they uh, enjoyed being up there with me uh, earlier in the summer, so it's nice to be here. It also feels very much familiar because uh, Jeff has already mentioned some of our childhood memories from when we were at Methody together, Uh, but even further back than that, I remember being in this building for the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention Uh, when my father would be here quite often, Joe Wright. It's actually interesting to be introduced as the nephew of my Uncle Fred, who, of course, I never met because uh, he was killed in 1935, which was before I or any or Jeff or I were born. Uh, But many of you, or some of you at least, may remember my father, Joe Wright, and certainly year by year, we would come to the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention uh, and man the UFM stall, as, as it then was. So it's lovely to be here. Uh, and to be able to share with us all throughout this week, uh, not only here in the first evening, but uh, in the little slots at the end of the Monday to Thursday evening, you'll see in the program it says Bible Fresh. Uh, That will not be an opportunity for John and John to uh, repeat what they did uh, this evening every time, but it's uh, in order to use that phrase as a way of saying that we want to end each day with a very brief word from the Bible. It will not be anything like what we're going to have now. Not that tonight's going to be terribly long, but it will not be as long uh, as this evening's address. But just a brief look at the Bible at the end of each main session throughout the week on Monday to Thursday. But tonight, our theme, as you may have seen in our program, is Salvation Belongs to Our God. That is the title that I was given and suggested to me. It's a wonderful title. Salvation Belongs to Our God. I'm sure you know that, of course, it's a great affirmation that comes at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It is the song of the redeemed. Do you remember the passage? It comes there in uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People of every tribe and nation and language, many, many more than represented even by the flags in this building. It's a great missional song, that Salvation belongs to our God. Uh, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because, of course, it is the great climax to the whole Bible story, which is the story of salvation. Salvation that has been accomplished by God through the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and salvation which is still uh, being run by the reign of God, the throne of God, where God sits It's universal, it's multinational, it's people of every nation and tribe who are there. And that, coming at the end of the Bible, is the goal towards all of history is moving. And it's certainly also the goal and the objective to which a convention like this is pointing, as the whole motivation for our engagement in Christian mission. So it's a wonderful verse from the end of the Bible. But also, of course, it throws us back, in a sense, to the very beginning of the story, Because it says, salvation belongs to our God. And that phrase, our God, is a reminder of that great covenant reality in the Old Testament where God said to the people of Israel in Old Testament times, you will be my people and I will be your God. And as Moses says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. This is the God we're talking about. Salvation belongs to this God. It is this God's property. It's his accomplishment. You see, salvation is not some kind of product that you can buy or indeed sell, although some people do get pretty rich uh, out of selling indulgences in the days of the Reformation and selling prosperity gospel today. But salvation is not something you can buy or sell. It belongs to God. It's not some kind of mystical religious dream that all human beings are trying to accomplish by their own uh, religious means. It's not some utopian dream of human accomplishment that we'll all get there in the end. Salvation belongs to our God, says this verse. Salvation is what God has done in history in order to redeem the whole of his creation and then to populate that new creation with a redeemed humanity, drawn, as the verse says, from every nation, tribe, and language and tongue uh, on earth. So salvation then is this gospel, this good news of what God has done in history already, what God is about today, and some of these wonderful things that Donald was telling us about there in Ukraine and Belarus. God is active in salvation in the present, and of course it is God's salvation that points us to the future. As Alistair, in his opening words, and leading us in our worship, reminded us that salvation is something past, because God has done it, something present, because God is still busy saving people, and something future, because it lies ahead of us as God's great goal. And that took my mind back from Revelation, going back to the beginning of the story, to the book of Exodus, where we find one of the great biblical examples of the saving God at work. And of course, I'm talking about the Exodus itself, when God brought the Israelites out of slavery. And if you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Exodus chapter 19, because it's a few verses in this passage I really want us to focus on to get to grips with this sense of past, present, and future in the purposes of God's salvation, salvation that belongs to our God. Exodus 19, if you're able to find it, uh, is where I'm at at the moment. I'll not take time to read the first few verses because it just reminds us that God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt three months before this chapter. They had come out of Egypt and the great exodus and the plagues and all of that. And now God has got these people to himself at Mount Sinai, which is where chapter 19 is located. Uh, And then we read, and now I'm at verse uh, verse 3, then Moses went up to God, that is, to the top of Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, for the whole earth is mine, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, what is interesting, I think, in that passage is that God points to the past, to the future, and then to the present in each of those three verses, 4, 5, and 6. And first of all, in verse 4, God points to the past grace of God's salvation. Past grace. God says, you have seen what I have done to the Egyptians. And of course, that's true. Because only three months before, as we're told in verse 1, these Israelites had been slaves. They were being whipped and beaten, and their little boys were being slaughtered. They were being the victims of a state-sponsored campaign of ethnic genocide against them, uh, using our kind of language for what was actually happening in Exodus chapter 1. But they weren't now. They were free. They were liberated. And God says, that's what I did. It was God's initiative. And the opening chapters of Exodus make it very clear that it happened because of God's compassion because of his love for them, because of his faithfulness to his promise, and because of his justice. But all of that flowed from God's grace. And so God points to his grace in action. He says, you've seen what I've done. His grace liberated them, saved them, delivered them. This was the great moment of Old Testament salvation that belonged to our God. So you see, Whatever is going to come next in this story is, is the gist of what Moses is saying. Which, of course, we know what's coming next because we've read the book. And we know that what's coming next is going to be the, the law, the Ten Commandments, the making of the covenant. But all of that is going to be based upon, founded upon, what God has already done. God's salvation. It's past grace. It's something that's already happened to them. God has redeemed them. He's liberated them. And then he says, now, let's talk about obedience and about the law. But grace comes first. I'm emphasizing this because there's still a fairly common misunderstanding around uh, in many Christian circles, including those who are committed to mission, as, as you are because you're here for this convention, that the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible is really very simple. Some people think that in the Old Testament, you got saved by keeping the law, whereas in the New Testament, thank God, we don't have to keep the law anymore, we get saved by grace. Now, the second, of course, is absolutely true. We are saved by grace, as Paul says, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's nonsense to say that in the Old Testament they got saved by keeping the law. No, no, no. They were saved by God's grace. And then he said, now let's talk about obedience. Salvation came first. Grace comes first. Grace always comes first. In the book of Exodus, you've got 18 chapters of salvation before you get a single chapter of law. God says, you have seen what I have done. Now let's talk about what you're going to do. And it's the same for us as it was for those Old Testament Israelites. The same truth that you find in the New Testament. There are commands in the New Testament to be obeyed as well. Love one another, said Jesus. That's a command of Jesus. But you remember he said, love one another as I have loved you. His love comes first. Forgive one another, says Paul. That's another command in the New Testament that we are to obey. But what did he say? Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. We love, says John, because he first loved us. Grace comes first. You can't live as you think a Christian ought to live unless you have first experienced the grace of God's forgiveness God's love, God's salvation, the salvation that belongs to God and comes to us through his grace. That's where we start. That's where it all starts, including whatever mission God entrusts to us. If we were to take this text, this Exodus 19 verse 4, and as it were to transpose it into New Testament kind of language, it's as if God were to point to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and to say, you have seen what I have done. Now then, how are you going to live in response to that historical past reality of the grace of God for our salvation? So that's the first thing then. God points back the salvation that belongs to God is the salvation that comes from grace. And the first thing is it's the past grace of God's historical act of salvation. But the passage doesn't stop there, of course. It moves on, and so must we, because we move on from the past grace of God's salvation to the future grace of God's mission. And this is where it begins to cut in to the theme and the the whole agenda of what we're about in this coming week here in Bangor. The future grace of God's mission in the second half of verse 5, particularly. Now, the best way, I think, to, to help us to think about this is to imagine for a moment if you would what was the view like from the top of Mount Sinai I've never been there I don't know if you've ever been there but try to imagine it imagine God tells us it was pretty wide now from the bottom of Mount Sinai it probably wasn't you see down at the foot of a mountain you don't see very much and that's where the Israelites were. They were at the foot of the mountain. God was at the top in, in the spatial language of the chapter. Of course, you know, God is everywhere. But in this story, God is, as it were, at the top of the mountain, which is where Moses goes to meet with God. And, and the Israelites who were at the foot of the mountain may have been tempted to think, well, we're the only people here. We, we're the, the, the only people who are special to God. We are the only people whom he's interested in, who he cares about. And if that was the way they were thinking, they were partly right, but very partly wrong. Yes, of course, there was a sense in which God did have a special, unique relationship with this people the, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament. He says to them, you are my treasured possession. That There is a, a personal covenant relationship between God and these people uh, that was there for no other nation at that time. But that did not mean, decidedly did not mean, that the Israelites were the only people on earth that God cared about or that God knew about or that God was seeking to bless because you see how God here says all the nations and the whole earth are both there in verse five both those phrases all the nations and the whole earth it's as if God at the top of the mountain is saying down at the foot of the mountain Israel you may not be able to see much but I can from up here I can see all the nations of the earth and they all belong to me Because they're all created by God in the image of God. And the whole earth I can see and it all belongs to me. All the earth is mine, says God. So what we're getting, you see, in in this little pair of verses is a lovely balance between something very particular, that is the Israelites, this unique people that God had just redeemed out of Egypt, on the one hand, and on the other hand, this universal vision of God for all the nations on the whole earth. Yes, at one level, you see, God had just rescued one nation out of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites. But the whole reason why God had done that was because God was on a a journey to bring the blessing of liberation and salvation to all the nations on the earth. And yes, God had demonstrated his power and his sovereignty in one particular land, the land of Egypt, where God had so demonstrated his power. But he had said to Pharaoh, he said, the reason I'm raising you up and doing these things is so that my name will be known in all the earth, that it all belongs to God. That's the breadth of God's interest. That's the breadth of God's mission and God's agenda. Now, if we'd been reading the story from the beginning as we ought to have been if we were paying attention to Bible Fresh, we should have been reading this story right from the very beginning of Genesis, we would be saying at this point, well, of course that is so. Because after all, who is this God who's speaking here on the top of Mount Sinai? Who is this God? This is the same God at the same place, speaking to the same person, Moses, who had said to Moses when Moses asked him that question, who are you, Lord? Who is this God? What's your name? Who am I to say when I take this message down to Egypt? Who will I say has sent me? And God, you remember, said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The same God, God of Abraham. And it was to Abraham that God had made that promise way back in Genesis chapter 12. Through you, he said, all the nations on the earth will be blessed that great missionary agenda of God the first great commission in the Bible God says to Abraham get up and go be a blessing and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed is that missionary or what that's the great commission the first one in the Bible And this is the same God speaking now to the people of Israel and saying, I'm still concerned about all the nations and about the whole earth, and what I'm doing with you as my people is ultimately for their sake, because I'm still the God of the whole earth and the God of all the nations. That's God's mission. That's God's agenda. That's God's future. That's what God can see ahead in this great Bible story which will ultimately lead as we've just said at the beginning to the book of Revelation when there will only people from all nations and the whole earth who will be gathered before the throne of God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ God could see that ending even when he was on Mount Sinai with the Israelites back in the book of Exodus that's the story so you see what we have here is the future grace of God's mission all nations, whole earth alongside the past grace of God's historical salvation. And the whole Bible story is slung between those two poles, between the past, what God has already done, and the future of what God plans to do. That is what makes sense of the story. And that, if I can put it like this, that is also what makes sense of our lives and our mission and our living on this planet in the mission of God. All that we do is slung between coming from the past of God's grace and salvation into the future of God's purposes and plans and mission for the world and for the nations. And that's what the mission of God is, and that's what he calls us to participate in. So you see, if we ask the question, who are we? We are people whom God has redeemed through his historical grace, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross, whom he has brought out of bondage, out of slavery, as he did for the Israelites of the Old Testament. And, And what are we here for? We are here because God wants to bring that blessing of salvation, the salvation that belongs to our God, to people of all nations through the whole earth. And that is what our lives are all about. That's what makes sense of our lives, gives significance to them that we belong to a story which began before we were born and will go on until the Lord returns, whether that's during our lifetime or after. And in that great span of cosmic history, God has got a place for you and a place for me. We're part of this because this is the God of grace and salvation. Well, between the past and the future, of course, lies the present And so our text goes there too. So we move from the past grace of God's salvation and the future grace of God's mission to the present grace of God's people in God's world for God's purpose. That's in verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what God says the Israelites are to be. He says you as my people will be something in this world. That belongs to me. That's what you will have as a role, as a mission, as an identity. And these are two words, of course, priestly and holy, which uh, we perhaps don't use so much today, uh, at least particularly the first. Uh, And so we need to ask, well, what did they mean in Old Testament terms? What was God saying when he said to the Israelites, you're going to be my priestly people and then my holy people? well in order to understand that we need to ask first of all what was the role of priests in old testament israel what did they do well basically the priests were middlemen or mediators to use a slightly older word they stood in the middle between god on the one hand and all the rest of the people on the other and in that middle position they operated in both directions representingly that is representing god to the people representing the people to god And they had two specific roles which I mentioned. The first is that they were teachers of God's law to the people. You may not be so familiar with that, but it's there very clearly in Leviticus 10 and Deuteronomy 33 and other parts of the Old Testament. The job of the priests was to teach the law to the people, to bring the word of God, the law of God, the knowledge of God, the will of God should come to the people through the priests. That was their place in society, which so often they failed to perform. And so the prophets were always ticking them off for not doing it. But that was what they were there for. Through the priests, God would become known to the people. But secondly, the other direction of movement, of course, was that it was the priests who were bringing the sacrifices of the people to God. We're more familiar with that uh, because we're aware from the book of Hebrews and Leviticus of that sacrificial function. So if you had sinned in some way, if you're an Old Testament Israelite, and, and you knew that because of your folly or sin, you were not able to go into the presence of God with the assembly of God's people to worship him. Because you, if you would sinned, you needed to stay out. You couldn't come in. What did you do? Well, you took the sacrifice, the animal, whatever was prescribed according to the law. You took that animal to the sanctuary. You called over one of the priests. You laid your hand on the animal's head. You confessed your sin over the animal. The animal was then slain, and its blood was sprinkled against the altar, representing God. And the priest would say to you, Your sin is atoned for, it's covered, you're forgiven, you're free. And so you could then come back into the presence of God through that sacrifice, which, of course, as we know, foreshadowed and symbolized the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in Old Testament times, that's how it worked. And so then you could come into the presence of God, you could rejoice, you could take the meat of the offering, if it was a fellowship offering, and go and have a barbecue, you and I back into the presence of God through the priest. So you see how the priest then was operating in both directions. As a representative, the job of the priest was to bring God to the people and to bring the people to God. And with enormous significance, God says to the Israelites as a whole people, the whole people of God, he says, you will be to all the rest of humanity, all the other nations, You will be to them what your priests are to you. See? You will be the people through whom I will become known to the world and through whom I will draw the world to myself. That was the priestly function of Israel, which, of course, is picked up in the New Testament and applied to Christians. The priestly role as representative is to represent God to the world and to bring the world to God. That's our mission. That's what we're here for. So, for example, the Apostle Paul says it very clearly uh, in Romans chapter 15... Uh, When Paul is talking about his life's work, he says uh, in Romans 15, verse 15 and 16, he says, I want to tell you about the grace that God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, that is the nations outside Israel, the non-Jewish nations. I'm a minister of the Messiah Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty, says Paul, of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. You see that double action? Paul says, my priestly job was to bring God to the nations and bring the nations to God. He says, that was my priesthood. It was an evangelistic, missional priesthood. It wasn't a priesthood that he exercised in the temple in Jerusalem. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was the wrong tribe. He was a Benjaminite. He could never have functioned as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem, but he functioned as a priest in the mission of God throughout the whole eastern Mediterranean, bringing the gospel to the nations and bringing the nations to God. And you might say, well, that's fine. That was all right. Paul was an apostle, uh, so it was fine for him. And maybe it's okay for missionaries who go out to other places in the world to do that. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Well, you don't get off quite so easily because it's exactly what Peter says to you and me as well. Because when Peter was speaking to Christians, as he called them, saints scattered abroad throughout the different parts of what we now call Turkey. Paul, Peter rather, picks up exactly this phrase from Exodus chapter 19 and he builds it into what he tells those Christians is their identity, their experience, their mission, their responsibility. It's 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. He says, you, you, he says. You are that chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's quoting exactly Exodus 19. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says you've had your Exodus experience. That's Exodus language, you see. Out of darkness into light. Out of slavery into freedom. Out of death to life. Peter says you've had that experience. Now go tell it, declare it. And then he adds, live such good lives among the nations that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will ultimately come to glorify God. So Peter applies it to us. He says, we are that priesthood. We are God's representatives in the world so that we are those who make God real to the world and bring the world to God in our prayer, in our mission, in our witness. We are God's representatives in the world. In other words, some of you may remember a couple of years ago, there was an advertising campaign on the London buses uh, paid for by the Secular and Humanist Society, which had on the side of the big red London buses, there probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life, which is a very odd sort of thing to say. Uh, But there was. But you see, if someone looks at that and reads that, there probably is no God they ought to be able to be saying to themselves that can't be true because i know jean or john and they're christians and god is very obviously real and living in them do you see that's the point we are supposed to be the living proof of the living god That is our mission. That is what we are called to. And and, and Moses then goes on, or God goes on in this text in Exodus 19, says, that's what I want you to be, my priesthood, my representatives in the world. But how are you going to be that? Well, to be his priesthood, you have to be holy. And to be holy in Old Testament terms didn't mean to be extra, especially religious. It meant fundamentally to be different, to be distinctive. God says to the Israelites, yes, you're going to be a kingdom, probably, at some point in the future, but you've got to be a holy one, you've got to be a priestly one, you've got to be different from the nations, not just like all the other nations. In fact, it says quite explicitly in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, where God says to the Israelites, do not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, don't follow the idolatry of military power and empire and all the sort of glory of that. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't follow their ways. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, where they worship the god Baal. And Baal was the god of money and sex and land and business and just about everything that seemed to matter in everyday life. And God says, don't go after that idolatry, health, wealth, success, So don't be like Egypt, don't be like Canaan, be my people, be different, be holy, be distinctive. Exactly as Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, salt and light, things that are distinctive, penetrating, transforming of whatever situation they are in. And so God says, that's what I want you to be. My priestly people representing me to the world. My holy people being distinctive from the world so the world can see what I'm like as you represent me. That's the mission. That's what God had saved these people for. And how do you get to be like that? Well, that's verse 5 again. God says, if you will obey me, if you will keep my covenant then that's the kind of people you will be. And you know, uh-oh, we're back again. Obedience, law, we're back to works, righteousness, and all that. Not at all. You're forgetting the context if you think that. This is still grace. This obedience that God is talking about here in Exodus 19 verse 5 is not an obedience that is a condition of salvation, God did not say to the Israelites, if you will obey me and keep my law, then I might save you and bring you out of Egypt, because he already had saved them out of Egypt. They already were his redeemed people. So obedience was not a condition of salvation, but obedience was a condition of mission. If you will obey me, if you will live in the way that I want you to live, if you will actually be the kind of people that I want you to be in the world, then... You can be my representatives, you can be my priesthood, you can have a mission, you will have a role in the world. Starting right now in the present is what God is saying to these people. This is the grace of obedience, responding to the grace of God's salvation for the sake of the grace of God's mission. Well, let me draw this then to a conclusion. Salvation belongs to our God, says our text. Past, present, and future. Salvation belongs to our God, but where do we fit in? What have we got to do? What is our role? Well, what we have seen is that like the Israelites of the Old Testament, we are people, I trust we are people, who have experienced that past grace of God's historic saving work, on the cross of Christ and like the Old Testament Israelites we are people whom God wants to use whom God has called into his mission the mission of his future grace of bringing the blessing of salvation to people of all nations in the whole earth to bring them to come to know and worship him and that mission our mission starts here We will be rejoicing throughout this week in the people whom God has sent to other parts of the earth to serve him and to do wonderful things to him. But let's not imagine that mission is about out there. It is out there, but it begins here. It is a life that we live, not just a cause that we support so we are those then who have experienced God's past grace we are called to live in response to God's future grace and then we are to live now in such a way that we represent that living God as his priesthood that is who we are that is what we're here for exactly as Peter says you are that people you are God's priesthood now go and live it live out that identity live by that story live in God's mission. And if we seek to do so, may God also give us the present grace to be able to do so, to be enabled to do so, for his name's sake and his glory. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.